How we doing folks? It's uh, Matt Whitmore here and this is Fitter Food Radio episode number 23. Today we have the pleasure of having uh, No Leg Griffin on the line. I, I do hope I pronounced her name correctly there. She is a, a naturopathic nutritionist who specialises in uh, great mental health. Um, so obviously using nutrition to deal with things like stress, anxiety and depression. Without further ado, I'm going to say, No Leg, introduce yourself. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for asking, actually. Okay, uh, most, most, most people don't ask. I appreciate oh, that. And they just start talking about themselves straight away. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, as you said, I'm a naturopathic nutritional therapist, and uh, I, I specialise in mental health and helping people feel happier, less stressed, more relaxed, calmer, um, To you know, through their changing their food, changing their lifestyle to kind of support that in themselves. And it's all interconnected, obviously, because sometimes you can have physical symptoms that make you feel a bit down or you start off by feeling a bit down, suddenly you start getting physical symptoms and things like that. So it's really, it's just kind of, we can come from lots of different angles to uh, help people feel calmer and happier. Awesome. Uh, Keris is here too, by the way. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> We're always chatting. Who do you think where's Keris? It's just, it's just madness. And how are you, Keris? I'm absolutely fine. Thank awesome. you for asking. Again, no one, no one normally asks. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I suppose I'll just um, mention Noleg and I trained together at the College of Naturopathic Medicine, and I was really keen to get her on the show because, um, for a number of reasons, uh, Noleg was a great energy throughout the entire time um, I was studying, not just to me, but to all of my um, fellow students because she generally tended to organize us all <laughs> very helpfully um liaise between us and uh, lecturers about various issues but, and also was just a great support and every time I spoke to you at college uh, not only were you a huge fountain of knowledge always out and about um, getting you know valuable experience at, at various different um, you've worked with at the Penny Bronze Centre which specialises in cancer um, and you've mentioned some other things that you've been doing so it'd be great to hear about that um, sort of broadening your expertise um, but as I said, you were also just quite a, a very sort of, you're a very vibrant person, very positive energy. And I can't think of anyone better to, to help people with um, mental oh, health issues. Thank you. <laughs> Stay on the line afterwards. I need some help. <laughs> um, so, of course, you know, this is your thing now, you know, naturopathic nutrition, uh, great mental health, etc. But why don't you tell us kind of how you got into it in the first place? Like what made you want to take that direction? Because it is... It is quite specific, isn't it, in the world of nutrition? So what inspired you to take that path? Yeah, well, um, my, my elder brother, he's about two years older than me, and from the age of about 8 to 12, he basically had no skin on his feet. Oh. Um, they, had, they, they were just like weeping sores, like very bad, you know, very bad eczema is what people called it and what people would you would call it to look at it and um you know it's very, and actually I was just talking to him recently and he was talking about what a stressful experience that had been because you know he couldn't go out and play with people because his feet were so sore and he was just in the, you know at lunchtime at school he'd be like in the classroom doing oh, extra yeah. things and, you know there's things like that and he had to like wear sandals and stuff which you know when you're a 10 year old and you know it's not like the most yeah. cool thing you know and so my parents were just like you know at their wits end they were going from one place to the other going from one specialist to the other I remember we had one kind of family trip down to um, Cork to see a specialist there which was you know we actually were given the day off school to do this at for some reason we all had to go uh, and this is because we never got days off school to do anything so you know I think it's really impact on my memory rolling all the way down to see the specialist in Cork to be like in there for 10 minutes to be told oh actually yeah okay come and see me you know in our local town in a month's time or something so it was just like they were in the conventional um, health system just didn't seem to to work very well so eventually it got to the point when my brother was 12 where he actually ended up with a rash all over his body um, not as bad as his feet but it was just everywhere and my parents were just like this is ridiculous we have to find something and they'd heard of a a doctor a gp um who wasn't that far away but who also was i mean i now know he was a naturopath he was also the things that herbs and nutrition and that kind of thing and they brought my brother to see him and this is kind of i don't know if you guys have ever had this um maybe matt i'm this for you but you know when you've never actually met somebody but they're actually a really influential person in your life through other people yeah. um yeah 
so I've never actually met this doctor personally, but he has actually been influenced in my life because within a week of my brother going to see him and then coming back, he was, you know, it was suggested that he might have candida overgrowth in his um, in his digestive system. And so he was very put on quite a strict diet. He was given herbal medicines. And within a week, his feet were hugely improved. That's wow. amazing. And, you know, so that was, you know, after four years of going and kind of having all the... I don't know, I think he was being treated for athlete's foot at one point. You know, it was all like this mysterious eczema. Oh, yeah, you just have eczema. That's just the way your life is. And um, whereas this this doctor had actually come up with a, um, with a, with a theory and then we tested out the theory and it seemed to work. So, you know, that was, so that was really influential for me. So I suppose I was 10 years old at the time. So, again, I think that's another kind of thing. I saw that really the power of food and of um, like complementary therapies compared to what conventional medicine had to offer at the time, which was pretty much nothing. So, so I think bringing all those things together when I was um, was looking into the college and or courses to do that kind of was what set me on my path. And and to begin with, I thought, well, I can sign up for this if I don't. Maybe it'll just help my health. You know, maybe I'll drop out because it just won't work or whatever. But you know, I can just start it. And um, yeah, so I qualified last year, and uh, now I'm practicing as a nutritional therapist. That's awesome. And and do you, and do your parents um, are they still still following? Um, you know, that's very open minded them to sort of step outside conventional medicine and seek well I suppose it initially you said he was a doctor as well but yes um, I mean they, they don't, I think that was reassuring for them at the yeah. time yeah and do they sort of now are they very much into alternative medicine um like you as well or no <laughs> this is an experience that seems to have had a huge impact on me but not so much the rest of my family because you know even now my brother doesn't really relate to you know at the time he had he gave up he didn't we didn't give up but you know this might have been a, a situation of the um the doctor working with the family but he so like as i said we always had homemade brown bread at home soda bread um uh so like he still ate that but he he never ate any yeast bread or any commercial bread at the time and all this kind of thing and you know he certainly has had health challenges since then and i've kind of pointed out links but you know it's 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 funny i think a lot of people do compartmentalize things and kind of say no that was that and now that's not me anymore and you're like well you know as as we know Karis, when you go through you go through the whole case and you you go through somebody's history and all their systems and, and everything and you build up a picture and everything happened to you has brought you to where you are now so everything's got an influence um but having said that i mean like my family compared to a lot of people you know, as I said, we, we did eat healthily um, growing up and my parents grow their own fruit and vegetables and that kind of thing. They've got quite a big garden. Um, so, you know, they were always kind of probably above average when it came to healthy eating. But yeah, I still kind of, I tried to drop little tidbits in because when you come home and say, oh, do this, do this, do this, they're just like sitting there saying, you know, who do you think you are? But one thing, you know, one thing that the last couple of times I've gone home um, is that my parents are eating butter again, which they hadn't done for years. Oh, wow, so I just was telling them, just just have some butter. Why yeah. don't you want that margarine? Just have some butter. It's nice, isn't it? You know? <laughs> so, you know, it's just these little, these little victories. Um, that you get every now and again I, I sometimes wonder what they think this is that I'm doing over here you know that they uh that I gave up you know kind of uh, a career to go off and retrain as something else and you just kind of think aren't oh, you a bit curious but I think they're a bit worried that if they ask one question they'll get everything wild on top of them well it's really interesting that you say that because we get loads and I mean loads of questions mm -hmm. from people saying that they really want to help their parents because you know parents generations are the ones that are absolutely fixated on whatever the doctor says a GP says is gospel mm. and um you know it's all about treating symptoms with medication and you know nutrition generally they're sort of following food industry rules uh, you know sort of really been sucked in with the marketing of low-fat foods and um you know and, and what we would you know health foods as it were that the food industry are promoting and um it, it's just really interesting and one thing that we were always taught at college was don't ever try and treat um, yeah. family yeah and i remember you know there's certainly more than one or two teachers in there who you know we would be sitting in, in the class kind of like you know gazing at them in awe saying how fabulous you are and then they would confess that their their parents i think it's often parents are the ones who come up wouldn't you know listen to a, a bar of it and all these kind of things <laughs> so then you just kind of go okay it's not just me it's it's a challenge for everyone i think one of the things that i do with my parents 
parents, if I'm trying to influence them in a kind of a gentle way, is that it's, um, I know you're a big fan of Michael Pollan, Karis, yeah. aren't you? Yeah. Because um, you introduced him to me, so I've read his books now. And he talks about, you know, simple food rules, like only eat something if your grandparents or your great-grandparents, depending on your age, um, would have recognized it as food. So, you know, I certainly do that with my with my parents. I kind of talk about my grandparents and say, well, would they have eaten this kind of thing, you know, when you were, or what did you eat when you were growing up? And that kind of thing, well, why wouldn't you eat that now? Weren't we all healthier back then and all this kind of thing? And that does get them thinking. Um, and I think that's helped with the butter situation. Yeah. Um, and what else? I've certainly got my dad into having protein with his breakfast, putting some nuts into his porridge and, and that kind of that. thing. So that, that is something, you know. Um, and he does, he asked me, I think this is the other thing, you know, he asked me specific questions and I really try and focus to give him the specific answer to what he's just asked and then just leave it at that because it can be so tempting when somebody gives you an opening yeah. say, oh this is this and then they end up doing nothing yeah um, whereas <laughs> if he's come to me and asked me something i try and say right well this is that and if you did that that might help so, uh so little little bits little achievements well, it's, it's funny because um i uh, just a couple of weeks ago I, I spent a week with my my nan kerry stayed here in london and i mean my nan's kind of like mid 80s now mm-hmm. and I mean, I'm sure anyone listening can completely relate to this, but, you know, grandparents, you know, parents always want to look after you. They always want to cook for you and provide, etc. But um, my my nan, since my granddad passed away, which was a good, I think it's just actually it's just over eight years ago now, my granddad passed away. And since then, I suppose, because my nan has been on her own, she she hasn't felt the urge to it's hard yeah, yeah you know she doesn't she doesn't cook for herself like mm, she used to i mean mm. everything used to be all homemade 100 yeah, percent. you know it was very yeah. rare something came out of a packet but she, my nan's got a, like a kind of like usual health problems i suppose you associate with old mm. age etc um but <laughs> she's got into this really bad habit of pretty much just dominating a conversation like you can't get a word in edgeways and no matter what we talk about it always comes back to her oh yeah totally totally (laughs) and um but i was saying to keris that what all the while i I was there i I basically cooked for her for a week um so as you can imagine like everything was fitter food styly you know all natural ingredients full of uh full of goodness Mm. And, and lots was, of lots of fish and meat, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, and protein is what elderly people really don't eat enough of. I think. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I yeah. agree with that. I mean, you know, everything that she had just involved a sandwich of sorts, yeah. amongst other stuff. But towards the end of the week, it was as if I could see an yeah. apparent change in her. She had like a, I was telling Keris when I got back. I, I, she she genuinely seemed interested in actually having a conversation yeah. with me rather than talking at me. She mm-hmm. she said she had more energy and she felt mm-hmm. she felt really really good. But then as soon as I suggested yeah. that it may have been the food, obviously she just rubbished it. She was like, oh no, it's just a coincidence. It's yeah, you yeah. know because she 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 doesn't dare make that association. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's it is really hard um, for people living by themselves, and obviously not just elderly people. Anyone living by themselves, it's hard to keep motivated to cook properly and this is also something that Michael Pollan goes, um, mentions in his books I, I read in Defense of Food but I think it's in his book called Cooked he talks about how we're not when we become less dependent on each other for food and for you know either producing food but also you know cooking it and eating it communally that's almost kind of a sign that that's when society starts breaking down mm. because everyone's very you know individualized and um, and you end up because because it can be, t- I'm sure you guys know, it can be quite time-consuming in today's world, by today's standards, to kind of keep good food on the table all the time. It's so much easier just to go down and buy your seven ready meals a week from from the supermarket. So, so I thought that was a really interesting. Ke- Keris wouldn't know. I do, I do with the cooking. <laughs> okay. she, just, she just waits for it to appear, don't you? And the brains. He's the well, brains. The brains. Well. You know, this is what when your grandfather was there, your grandmother. You know, yeah. she was able to keep cooking because there was somebody there to have it. So it's all an important role. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I'm sure it does kind of tap into the kind of primal psychology of, you know, providing for your family, yeah. etc. But I mean, I, oh, yeah, totally. I mean, there was a really interesting conversation that went on in one of our online uh, groups uh, the other day where one of our members went round to a, a relative's house 
and kind of gave them the heads up of the foods that they weren't eating, you know, the stuff they were avoiding at that time. It's like dairy and wheat, mm. etc. Um, this relative, like, didn't agree uh, with the principles of it and thought it was a bit of a fad and chose to just kind of uh, plonk a load of dairy and wheat yeah. on their plate anyway yeah. but it was kind of disguised in one of the foods and yeah so it's almost like trying to sabotage yeah, <laughs> yeah and it is. i mean like i you know i kind of uh you know when you when you're in family occasions it can be hard to stick 100 percent to um your rules and you kind of you have to like you know draw judgments about how much you're willing to um how much of a point you're willing to make and is it worth it so while i feel better if i don't have gluten and dairy i don't immediately have such a bad reaction that i'm kind of in bed which some people obviously would so you know i just kind of judiciously do i do tend to turn down desserts um when i'm with my family in ireland um which i might not always do if i was you know with my husband here in the uk (laughs) but you know i think it is one of those things that you know i think that yeah i mean I think the other thing is that you might know yourself, oh, actually, I'll make this decision now to have this, but I won't tomorrow. But actually, for other people around you, it can be a bit confusing. I've got, well, you ate this yesterday. Why aren't you having it today? So so, so it is hard, and it is hard with, um, yeah, that's hard when somebody's trying to make you eat things where you're just like, oh, actually, I don't really want to or I can't eat that or whatever and and you know even when you're out with in restaurants with friends you know before I kind of changed my diet I'd just be like yes I'll have this thing and it's all fine and if people were being very specific about like well does this have this in it I'm not sure I'd just be like you know mentally tapping my my my, my fingers on the table but now that's me I'm there just checking <laughs> with, the, with the waiter you know do you think there's this and that you know and that kind of thing but yeah it's just I think it also it just depends on how strong you're feeling either way you know whether you kind of feel you know actually I can cope with a little bit of this and it's fine because I know when I go home again I'll eat well or whether you're like saying actually this is really important to me right now and I'm not going to eat something unless I know what's in it but um but yeah it does affect family and family relationships because I think what people eat is so important to their identity in lots of ways Um, and when you come in and say well actually I don't eat that people find that a bit threatening because they feel like you're criticising them, which yeah, maybe it's absolutely. my tone of voice probably is. But, <laughs> but, you know, I just try and say, you know, no, I'm not having any or whatever. And, and sometimes people just don't pay attention. I suppose I've had a little bit of training because I don't drink alcohol and I never have. And, you know, especially being from Ireland, that's quite unusual. So I've, <laughs> I've had a lot of that over the years of people saying, oh, but, you know, have you ever tried this or have you ever tried that and all this kind of thing. And I was like, I just don't drink alcohol. So I had some training, I suppose, in that way. It's funny though, isn't it? Because if if you if you say to someone, um, you know, let's say it's a relative or whatever it may be, a friend, and you say, "Oh, I'm celiac," you know, um, you know, I can't have wheat, etc. You know, they'll be like, oh, "Okay, no drama," you know, I'll cater for that. But if you say, "I choose not to eat wheat or dairy because I, I feel better for it," yeah. all of a sudden people object to it and people have got something to say and, and whatnot yeah. whereas it shouldn't really matter should it yeah because i think it's also that kind of thing that when you say that to the person the person can think to themselves well i'm not celiac so it's okay for me to eat it uh, and that's not you know there's some a doctor or somebody has put this label on this person and that's not me so that's fine whereas when it's kind of like somebody being conscious of how their body is reacting to food maybe that's a bit more uncomfortable for people because maybe they're thinking well yeah i don't feel that great after i've mm. That, or I know I shouldn't have, you know, especially I think when it's when it's when it's stuff that everyone kind of agrees is unhealthy. So you know, sugary desserts or something, then people, you know, can feel a bit more threatened maybe when you say that because it makes them think, well, maybe you know, somewhere in the back of their heads, maybe that's something I should be doing, and maybe that's what they react to. No, that, so, that, so it's interesting. It's very psychological. Yeah, well, I was going to say, just moving on to um, mm-hmm. it's, it's a great link now. You're sort of specialising in psychological well, mental health issues mm. and linking it back to nutrition. So, what would be common issues that you see in clients, and and how would they generally be approached by conventional medicine? Because I know you've researched that so that you can obviously be, you know, very well aware of what a doctor might have told them or the medications that they might have been prescribed, and how you can support or offer alternatives. Yeah, um, I suppose people, you know, the kind of the first kind of sign you often have. So sometimes people will talk about their physical kind of symptoms, or and maybe even, you know, 
finding it difficult to get out of bed in the morning or having kind of that mid-afternoon slump or 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 having trouble sleeping as well and um but they're they're you know these things are sadly quite common but you know then when you ask them if they're on any medication and people that i speak to uh, you know they will say that they're on a, an antidepressant normally a, an ssri so something like citalopram seems to be the most common one that i come across these days and um, and that's when you kind of get the first indication okay so they've been to their GP and, and told them about symptoms and they've ended up with a prescription for an antidepressant and they could have been on this for years. Some, sometimes I was asking one woman the other day and she really had to think about how long she'd been taking it because it had been you know quite a while and she was there scratching her head for quite some time thinking it was such a part of her life every day to be taking the antidepressant. So while like if you look at NHS guidelines they will talk about what the treatments that you will get you know the kind of the first kind of sign is that sometimes the doctor will just say well look just come back and see me again in a couple of weeks one of the things that gps are supposed to mention is exercise because exercise has been shown so you guys are the expert in that much more than me Um, (laughs) but about how you know exercise can help with depression um and also about like self-help groups and you know kind of groups of people together whether it's online or in person kind of helping each other but you know, in my experience, and maybe I just don't meet the people who get that advice from their GP and then kind of get back to, you know, what's normal for them afterwards. Maybe I only meet the people who get antidepressants. But it does seem to be an awful lot of people, if they persist in going back to their doctors saying, look, I still don't feel right, they will, it seems, quite quickly get prescribed an antidepressant. I agree with that completely. Yeah. I would say it's like Smarties. It's almost yeah, like... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I do, I do feel sorry for, for GPs because, you know, they don't... What else... You know, you kind of almost think, what else are they supposed to do? They have yeah. so little time to see somebody and here's something that they can do that they can give them that everyone says you know, is helpful and works for pe- for some people. That's always the thing that kind of makes me laugh, really, in a kind of a sad way about, you know, how... Because I think there's this really interesting thing, you know, so this um, this book that's been really influential on me is um, one called Demedicalizing Misery, which is um, edited... It's kind of chapters written by different people and it's edited by Joanna Moncrief and Jackie Dillon and they have a third person, but I can't remember his name. Um, and they talk about how we've kind of when it comes to mental health issues we've kind of said oh the problem's in that person's head and you know we're all fine and it's that person over there has a problem in their head and oh it's the chemicals in their head they're a bit off so if we can just change the chemicals in their head that they'll be better and there's you know it's a really interesting kind of viewpoint and I probably can't do it justice uh, at all but certainly uh, not in not in the, the time that we have available but you know they, they talk about how you know mental health problems as we see them are really symptoms of things wrong in in kind of communities and families in society that people are kind of like isolated and traumatized in ways and then they, they find it difficult to get kind of joy out of life so you know so the conventional medical thing tends to say there's a problem in your head um and we'll give you these drugs and you know talking therapies are becoming more kind of widely available and there's a program called increasing access to psychological therapy or iapt which in some areas means you can actually refer yourself you don't need your gp to refer you and you can go on a waiting list but you can see um a psychologist for a certain amount of time um so that's sort of suggesting that it's external factors like um so perhaps emotional stress from family or work stress that's are they sort of suggesting that that's causing a chemical imbalance in the brain or that it's more of a genetic thing or well I think that people do seem a lot of people in the kind of conventional world or people with it who have been treated conventionally do see themselves as having a problem with the chemicals in their brain um and that you know but this may be i think what they see it and you know thankfully i'm not in that position myself but you know from from speaking to people they see it as being triggered by life events um whether those are long ago or more recent 
Um, but, you know, the interesting thing is you just kind of think it's actually, because obviously some people go through those kind of life events and don't feel that. So you're just going, well, okay, what's what's wrong with me that that person went through exactly the same things and they're still working away and look at me, I, I can't get out of bed in the morning. So I just think it's this kind of really kind of sad kind of thing where we said to somebody, oh, there's just something wrong with you and um, and we need to fix you and, and maybe this treatment will work, but maybe it won't work for you because not all of them do, you know, and it seems yeah. like such a depressing kind of, you know, um, <laughs> uh, way it's to depressing, deal with it. Depressing, depressing. Yeah, and, um, and, and also the sad thing is, it's like, you know, I think... I mean, some GPs are obviously great, but you do need to be a bit assertive when you go into a GP uh, if you want something specific. And just the time when you feel least assertive is when you've got depression or anxiety yeah. and you just want somebody to, like, help you. And the fact that you have to go in and say, no, I don't just want an antidepressant. I want to see, I want to be referred for, for counselling or something like that. You know, that, that requires a lot of, um, uh, you know, initiative and motivation, which, you know, somebody in that position doesn't really have so there's you know chances are they are just going to accept the prescription and, and the, the thing with um you know like depression is isn't it i mean i'm not obviously i'm no expert but depression could obviously can come in many kind of shapes and forms so to speak and it can also come at any time you know mm -hmm. people that have you know potentially been really chirpy happy positive people for a, a really good chunk of their lives mm -hmm. you know it can kind of all of a sudden creep up on them for for whatever reason um, I mean, I actually know a, who was a friend of my grandparents, um, you know, so this guy was in his 60s at the time, because I, I was quite a lot younger, but a really comical guy, the guy that kind of made everybody laugh, everybody knew who he was kind of in our area, and then all of a sudden, just for, well, for no reason apparent to us, like he hadn't lost his wife or, or, uh, or relative or anything, he just, he just became depressed, and he, all of a sudden he was literally a... a a, a shadow of what he what he used to be mm -hmm. um you know and this guy was in his 60s you know from, mm -hmm. from what i could see lived a very kind of positive happy life up until then yeah yeah no i mean i think i think yes and from the outside that can definitely be and even from the inside i mean like ruby wax is somebody who's written a lot about her experiences of depression and you know she's she's been in she's done tv programs and been in kind of campaigns kind of awareness raising campaigns about like yeah. the one in four about how one in four people will suffer from i, I can't well, i don't think it's depression, i think it's some kind of mental health problem um in their lives and about so how you know trying to like remove the stigma and that kind of thing but of course you know what and I, I don't know the person that you're talking about, but, you know, sometimes people who are very up like that all the time, it's, you know, it's it's there underneath and they're almost trying to ignore it or for, forget about it. And then, you know, someday, you know, the, just the strain of doing that is just too much. It takes its and, and it takes it. Or, you know, some people have certainly read accounts where they just said they woke up one morning and it was there and they had no idea why or no idea where it come from. So, you know, which is very sad. But, um I think, you know, uh, Karis, you were saying there about genetics and is it genetic or something like that. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the research hugely into that, but I think it's it's going to be similar. You know, you, you guys were talking about the um, the DNA of, like, sports, you know, in one of your iPods recently. I don't know if it was the last one or not. And you are saying, well, you know, there, there's, there's no one gene. There's just different genes that might have different influences and other things. But this kind of thing where medicine seems to be going now of trying to find the genes that are to blame. But as we were saying, I think, or as you were saying when you were talking about cancer, that, you know, lifestyle and the environment can be so, it has a much bigger impact than genetics could ever have. And I think with something like mental health problems and depression, perhaps less perhaps more or less kind of genetic things but also about like you know lives in families so things get passed on from generation to generation not because it's physically in the people but because we tend to repeat patterns from um you know if you if you if you've grown up in a certain way with your parents acting a certain way towards you you know chances are that's the way you will act towards your children and so if there are issues like that coming up trying to see where these patterns are coming from yeah, um, it's really, it's really, really helpful for you What's really cool about what you just said was um, ever since I was a kid, I always remember my mum hated Mondays, uh, like really hates Mondays. Mm. And um, it was, I don't know when it started to stick with me. I think it was more sort of as a teenager when you pick up a bit more on like parents' emotions. 
my dad uh, worked away for a while so he'd always head off on Monday for the oh. week and so Mondays was like a really you know blue day for my mum and oh. I similarly hate Mondays and I have yeah. to be and I know people actually Matt writes a really nice uh, post every Monday called Motivational Monday mm. and it's, it's the one day of the week where I feel I really need it and part of me thinks this comes from my mum where I just picked up on this oh it's the start of the week it's the end of the weekend you know there's lots of reasons that Monday might be a bit blue for you but the other thing I've, I've started to question recently is whether it's because we spend the whole week, because um, I'm really big on the links between stress and mental health, which I'm sure you can talk about as well, mm-hmm. that you spend the whole week building, like working really, really hard, building up to the weekend, having a great time over the weekend, then it's like you've run out of steam mm-hmm. <laughs> on Monday, and yeah. it's almost like you deplete so many, I don't know whether it's neurotransmitter related, but you just seem to go back down to ground zero and have to start again, and that's... Um, and I see it quite a lot in, in people that I speak to, clients and, and even friends and family as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I suppose there could be physical elements to it, but I think you're right, the stronger kind of element to it is about habits and, and what you've done every Monday for however long. <laughs> and, you know, so I know that it's a similar kind of thing. When my when my husband hears, like, Poirot music, he, he feels a bit sad. Now, he quite likes watching Poirot, but when he was a kid, Poirot was on, I think, on Sunday evenings here. Yeah. So for him, hearing that music was very much like, oh, I've got school tomorrow, and, you know, have <laughs> I done all my homework, and all this kind of thing. So, you know, there is that kind of link. And I think there's, a, so, you know, I think the big um, kind of, newer movement in kind of coping with things like depression and we should really talk about food and depression in a minute but I'm quite interested in all the psychological thing um, is about like mindfulness and becoming aware of how you're thinking and you know I think it's through that kind of um, way you can kind of get an awareness of of what you're thinking and and try and kind of start changing it a bit say look Monday's just a Monday you know it's uh, it's just another day of the week It's it's a new start it's a new opportunity that kind of thing so um, so I think by being, you know, so if you kind of identify that maybe actually it isn't because Mondays are the most dreadful days, maybe it's the way that you think about it and the way that um, it's been in your life, then that actually gives you the chance to change it. So, which I think is quite amazing, really. It's not it's not something in your genes, which you can't change. It's something that's in your power to change it. But to come back to the food element of it, I think there's that kind of thing of to have kind of flexibility and the ability to learn new behaviors, you do need your brain to be in tip-top physical condition and and also your you know the rest of your body as well. So it's about kind of like giving your, your body the raw materials that it needs to um to be able to have all your all the chemicals made properly that are um, doing messages in your brain and to have all your your brain itself like the neurons to have like the if you like the infrastructure of your brain you know working really well what would you class as brain foods then so to I speak mean, the most important one i think which is what people are missing out most on is fat oh, and i yes. know you guys are big fans of fat love fat <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, especially like the omega-3, so your brain is 60% fat. So if you've been eating low-fat diet for, you know, since 1982 or whatever, um, you know, how can your brain really work? Because it's like like if you hadn't been maintaining your house, if you, you know, if you've been rather than like replacing bricks in your house, you've been kind of putting in some paper mache or something. It's just not going to work. Um, so, you know, eating, and especially the omega-3 fats are very important for your brain. So, you know, classically fish was kind of thought of as brain food. So, uh, you know, that is true that, you know, you need to be getting kind of at least three servings of oily fish a week to try and get some, you know, uh, physical stability in your brain because your body will does want to work properly so if you give it the raw materials it will do the best it can with it so definitely fat is a big thing you know coconut oil is another great fat for the brain um because it's saturated fat which again we've been told is a very bad thing but that's wrong um (laughs) and what else is good you know i mean i think the other thing for for kind of good thinking and that kind of it's about kind of balancing your your um blood sugars because if your blood sugar is constantly going up and down and your body's having to deal with that, then it's going to prioritise that over thinking and, you know, feeling kind of emotions and that kind of thing. It's going to say, well, actually, that would be very nice to be able to think through that problem you've just got, but 
we've got a big problem here in that there's too much sugar in the blood. So we're, we're going to do that first. And so if you're constantly putting your body under that kind of pressure, then your, your thinking and your, and your emotions will be affected. Have you also heard of um, the term type 3 diabetes, which is essentially where we're actually getting diabetes in the brain and the brain also needs glucose um, for energy. But because of things we do in terms of diet, lifestyle, we can get insulin resistance actually in the brain. Oh, no, interesting. I hadn't actually heard that in the context of, yeah, no, that is interesting. So what, diabetes in the brain? Yeah, so because we're getting insulin resistance elsewhere, the same thing's going to happen in the brain due to inflammation and other mechanisms. And so there's this theory that some of the um, neurodegenerative diseases, I can never say that word, neurodegenerative diseases are Mm -hmm. stemming from uh, from insulin resistance as a a trigger. That's Um, really interesting. Do you have to send me some stuff on that? Yeah, yeah. Just because yeah. the other common thing that we would know is about gluten, because you know gluten people people who just kind of you know maybe just to humor you or whatever just kind of say okay I'll give up gluten for a month can often find that they're thinking they just think much more clearly and there is kind of a view or a theory or whatever that that if gluten can damage the gut it can also damage the blood brain barrier um, and actually kind of get into the brain and, and cause problems in there and actually at a conference I was at on Saturday we were uh, we heard about you know kind of research that indicates I think it's, it's kind of like a hypothesis at the moment but they're they're basing the hypothesis on previous research that even if a person doesn't have any gut problems with gluten they can still have problems in the brain with gluten um, oh, which wow. was kind of quite scary for me because I thought, oh, you know, I can just, you know, get them have a test and we'll see if if, uh, if how their gut is with gluten. But now I'm like going, oh, that might come back okay and they might still have an issue. But the gold standard with gluten anyway is to exclude it from your diet and see how you feel and go with that, you know, whatever all the, whatever your parents or your, your, your kind relatives or all the research in the world might say, if you cut it out and find you feel better, then, you know, you found out something about yourself that you should... Yeah, go with. So aside from gluten, what other foods would you class as a baddies for the brain, so to speak? Um, I think, you know, the other, the, the things that kind of go along with the low-fat diet are the artificial sweeteners, um, which people, you know, there's indicates that they aren't very good for your brain, that they're kind of neurotoxic. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, in a way it kind of also goes back to the balancing blood sugar thing because the, there is a view that when your body tastes that really sweet taste of artificial sweeteners, it's, it thinks it's got some sugar going its way, so it comes and prepares. So then when it doesn't even get the sugar, it's completely confused as to what's going on. And again, you know, your brain's trying to, like, manage all these things as well as make you remember what it is you were supposed to get at the supermarket and um what time your meeting was at and all that kind of thing so no wonder if you're you know if that's the kind of fuel you're trying you're putting into your body no wonder it doesn't always your brain doesn't always perform the way you'd like it to do you know what the massive shame is about um, sweeteners for me as well is the generation that's completely hooked on them is parents and grandparents because they've become, again, a bit calorie phobic throughout the 80s and sweeteners was the solution to that. Yeah, and, and of course we're telling them to give up sugar yeah. to have sugar and they're like, oh, no, but it's fine because I have this, you know, brand, insert the brand name here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it is. And, and what also gets me, I mean, I suppose it's kind of just the, the pleasure principle I suppose to some extent but I just kind of think why would you bother wasting your time eating or drinking something which doesn't have any fat in it doesn't have any you know at least sugar is a normal food that you know you know what what are you doing wasting your time you know and also there's the classic thing that people say is that you know when you see people drinking diet coke most of them are overweight so you know it can't be this magic potion (laughs) (laughs) but it just seems like the generations that are more at risk of, of diseases like you know Parkinson's, Alzheimer's are consuming high levels of, of sort of, of chemical sweeteners really which mm. is the last thing their body really needs yeah. you know, in those later years of life and then you're seeing this massive increase of all of those conditions as well yeah. and I know we personally know well um, I think my grandparents both had something like four or five sweeteners it was like it was a free food you know it yeah. just had no impact yeah. whatsoever on the body so let's just stick six in a cup of tea and then have six cups of tea throughout the day um, which is just yeah um but the other thing i was going to ask about was what's your take on caffeine um i was actually at a, a it was a, a primal um presentation evening the other night and got into a debate about caffeine where 
one of the presenters is very much, um, you know, sort of very strict paleo, very primal, does not believe if caffeine is, is a drug, it's, it, you know, crosses the blood brain barrier. And so he felt it affects sleep, it affects stress, it hammers the hypothalamus gland in the brain. Uh, I was in the four category because I'm a bit of a coffee fan. <laughs> yeah, because then you guys given up, and then on your last iPod, I uh, podcast, I was hearing you saying, "Oh, we've got a new coffee machine." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "I've given up." Well, <laughs> it's decaf. It, it was, you were, to be fair, the us giving it up was never a. We always do it temporarily. We cut yeah. it out every now and again just to regain control. It's like you're in a bad relationship with coffee. Well, actually, actually, you know, I can cut this time. It'll be different. <laughs> this time, you know, it's all going to be great. And after a while, you have to kick it out again and say, you know, no, this is just never going to work. We, we, <laughs> we, we, know, we, we don't have as much as we used to, though. Do we? I'll, I'll say one thing. I, I was listening to another um, podcast of a naturopath this morning, actually, whilst I was out walking, and he was saying. If you can get into a uh, relationship with coffee where you don't need it to get out of bed, you're not an incredibly stressed out person, you're not falling asleep in the afternoon, um, and you enjoy it for the taste and the um, habitual, you know, I like to go for a coffee with friends. Um, He felt it could be positive, it's got antioxidants, it's got some, you know, there are some benefits to having it, and there are epidemiological studies that show populations that consume coffee have, you know... um, I don't know, it was longer life expectancy or something or less health risks of some sort. But what uh, I have done and have changed is I don't have coffee first thing. So I don't use it to get out of bed. So my energy levels are good. I can get up fine. I can go about my day and I can take or leave it. And some days I leave it. So that's where I've got to. And that's Yeah, I think that's the thing. And I think some people can do that and other people can't. Yeah. You know, and for the people who can't kind of, you know, have that control over it, that they're not saying, you know, like, I have to have this coffee and I'm not even tasting it or anything like that, then, you know, they're the people who should really think about giving it. Because it's about having control over your your life and that that you have control over the things that you put into your mouth. Because, you know, I think these are the things, I mean, uh, one thing that I went through quite a phase on, I was watching all those programs which are about kind of, um, oh, what's, what's the technical term? Uh, stomach stapling, you know, where oh, you know, the, the bariatric or... surgery and, yeah. and that kind of thing. And so I can tell you, you know, there's that I've seen so often the surgeon doing that um, with that special staple gun thing that cuts and puts three lines of staples along either side. And I'm just sitting there kind of with my hands in front of my face, not, you know, peeking between my fingers. Because I just think, you know, to see somebody's digestive system being discovered like that. <laughs> and then what happens is, you know, sometimes it works, you know, and I think perhaps there's some kind of, I'm not an expert in this area, but perhaps there's some kind of thing for when somebody has to lose a lot of weight very quickly or they are going to die. Maybe in that case, you might say. But so many cases where you see the people following up and, you know, they're still picking up food that's not good for for them and putting it into their mouths. And you're like going, so what, you know, you could chop their arm off. They're probably still going to be doing it. You know, so it's kind of trying to address that kind of of thing of saying, you know, it's not a problem with their digestive system. It's, you know, making their stomach so small that they can just fit a little bit in. I mean, like one woman I saw on it, like she basically just started drinking like lattes all day, every day. And so she'd barely lost, you know, she'd lost some weight, but not as much as they'd all hoped. So it was like, you know, when someone's determined to keep putting stuff in their mouths, then, you know, very little is going to stop them. And and I think that's what's really sad. That's, that's not being that in the that kind of conventional medicine um, setup it's not being addressed what is it that's driving them to keep putting these things into their mouths that are not good for them so to come back to the coffee if you are in control and you're saying yes i can have this or maybe i won't have this then that's great but if you're like going i can't you know i can't function without coffee then mm. you know you are in 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 trouble i think and you should consider like getting off it and, and seeing um how you feel again is back to the thing like with gluten if you cut it out and you feel better well now you know you know yeah. and nobody else can come and tell you that you're making it upwards in, in your head or whatever you're like well i know that when i when i have coffee that you know it's not good for me and that kind of thing so sure. so that's why i kind of think you know different you know it, different people metabolize different substances in different ways and and i think it changes over time when i was you know we we used to drink coffee when i was a child which 
is quite unusual um, for children to be drinking coffee, but we used to. Come That's not very Sunday. Irish either. I wouldn't have said no, that. No, no, very, very. You know, my parents are very sophisticated, really. And um, not every day, but we'd have it like they had like a percolator, and we would have that on the Sunday after dinner. And you know, when I was very little, I wouldn't. But it was kind of like you know, it was a sign that you were getting older that you could, you know, you'd have the coffee with you and your parents after dinner. So when I was younger, I could just drink coffee all day every day, and it would make no difference to me whereas now I'm, I'm currently off caffeine hooray um, <laughs> but I have you know I do have this bit of an on-off relationship and I do find that you know I can have the first couple I'm like yes this is fine I won't have any tomorrow and that's fine too um, but soon I kind of get into that thing where I can't walk past the shop without going in to get one and that's when I kind of think you know have have a severe talking I'll to tell myself. You, I'll tell you something though uh, I think times are definitely changing because when I was a kid when I was a teenager um, I didn't drink coffee at all. You know, I didn't drink it at home. It didn't even dawn to me to go to a coffee shop. We just didn't do it. Yeah, I was um, I was in Starbucks working the other week, and I was. Uh, it's the worst coffee ever. I know, but they 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 do a. They open early. They they, they, they oh, open okay. at six. Do you tell them your name? Say again. Do you tell them your name? Did they ask you your name? Oh, really? your they, they normally name? don't need to because when I go in, I go in so early, there's no one else there. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's the coffee for the only person in the Starbucks at 6am. But what I was going to say was it got to about 8.30 and obviously, you know, just before like uh, school starts and then all of a sudden the Starbucks was literally jam-packed with school kids. Mm, you know, oh as young as look like 12, 13 and they're all getting their espressos and... God knows oh what else, God. and I just thought, wow, like those poor teachers. I know. Uh, <laughs> Imagine, and they're they're knocking it back in the staff room. No, when I was actually when I was um, at university, I worked in a summer camp for a couple of years for teenagers, and um, there used to be. It wasn't even coffee. It was um, I don't know if it's still around. It was one called Jolt that was a very high caffeine drink. And so we were actually on a university campus where the summer camp was. And these were, as I said, 12 to 16 year olds. And when the message went out that the stock, the, the shop had restocked with Jolt, they would all be down there, you know, kind of stocking up. And we were just like, they were going, oh, my gosh, you know, can we talk to the shop? Can we say, please don't have this stuff anymore? Because they'd all go a bit crazy and be running around the place and, <laughs> and up all night. That was the thing. I think they, they just wanted to be up all night. So, yeah, so it is quite scary because, like, it is, you know, as you are saying, Karis, I know you were saying it was a good thing, but it is a drug and it is something that people get dependent on, whether they're actually physically dependent or whether they're psychologically dependent who knows but it is a dependency if you, if somebody's saying to you i cannot go about yeah. my day without going to this shop and getting this drink and otherwise i can't do it that's not a good way to be about anything i think it's a combination of the two i do i think you know it's kind of like part psychological part physical because mm -hmm. i actually used to think that i did not need coffee i had it because i chose to have it because i enjoy it and then i cut it out completely and felt like i'd been run over by a massive truck Mm -hmm. um, so I knew that obviously my body was physically dependent on it because once I removed it, I paid the price. But um, yeah. I just very quickly want to... Um, and of course, a lot of people, when they do that, they find, they think, oh, it's because I need coffee, and they go back and yeah. Yeah. straight yeah. away. Yeah. So <laughs> exactly. It's, it's kind of reassuring somebody saying, yes, the first few days are going to be really rubbish, but after that, you are going to feel so much better. And I remember distinctly, like the first time, I didn't just give up caffeine. I gave up caffeine, sugar, gluten, and dairy on a Tuesday, and the reason it was a Tuesday is because it was the day after Easter Monday, so I had to Easter out of the way, and for the <laughs> first shot. two days, I felt terrible, and then I really distinctly remember on the Thursday afternoon, and I was at work, I was in this room that didn't even have any natural daylight coming through, but it felt like the sun had just come out, I suddenly just felt this kind of amazing lifting of, you know, of all this kind of burden, whether it was like detox, or maybe it was like the whole time, just being kind of... Uh, you know, having these sugar and gluten and caffeine having these bad effects on my system. Um, I just kind of felt so much lighter and I was just like, and nothing else had changed because I was still standing talking to somebody in my team about this work we had to do, but my feeling about it had suddenly changed. So I really think these, these foods have such a huge effect on us that we, we struggle to identify. Well, touching on your degree, which you said mm -hmm. you said you had um, a psychi uh, psychology. Psychology. psychology degree. Um, <laughs> so I suppose you could say like using what you know from that as well as what you know on a nutrition front now. Because obviously the big thing that 
that we work with and and you know I'm I'm guilty for this myself is is comfort eating you know emotional eating mm. so people kind of obviously resorting for, to, to to poor food choices to kind of combat you know like be it depression low self esteem anxiety etc cetera, etc cetera. um so how, how would you deal with something like that someone who you know has got a fat loss goal they've got a health goal uh, and they can stay to a plan, you know, for some time before, you know, they do start seeking comfort from food. Obviously, you need to get to, to the root cause of, of that problem. But I'd just be curious to to know how you would actually deal with that. I would like to tackle one issue at a time because what, what people really worry about is, because of everyone telling them, is portion sizes. And while you know, it is important not to be constantly having enormous plates of food. If you try to eat more healthily, but also keep your portion sizes, what, what somebody has told you or what you think is reasonable, at the same time, that can just be far too much of a, of a challenge for someone yeah. because they're just trying to do everything at once. So what I would always say is, let's eat as much as you like, but only these foods. And is it you know, spinach. Yeah, yeah, but only you know, but only cut greens. out you know, like, you know. So so if you're you know, if there's somebody who's like tends to snack and graze, okay, you continue to snack and graze, but don't have any biscuits in the house, don't have any chocolate in the house, don't have any um, crisps in the house. Have you know nuts and seeds and um, you know fruit and and these kind of healthier alternatives. That, you know, as time goes on, we might want to address those as well and change how we're doing those. But it's just that first step to saying, actually, you know, don't try and do everything all at once. So let's first of all change what's in your diet and then we can look to see um, what's, uh, you know, changing the, you know, so somebody's not eating cashew nuts all day, every day. But yeah. somebody who, you know, who has up to then been eating you know, breakfast cereal all day, every day eating nuts all day is a step in the right direction and of course the interesting thing is that when you start taking kind of refined carbohydrates out of your diet you it becomes much easier for you to regulate portion sizes yourself because if you're eating protein and fat and kind of whole grains and um you know less sugary things you get satisfied so much quicker yeah and i think that also helps in terms of like you just said the cravings and um and, and actually i think most processed foods are almost uh, so domino-like that you can just eat and eat and eat and eat and because never that's why they, ever... they've got all those people working to make them like that <laughs> yeah, exactly. so that you will eat more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And one, one thing I was going to um, mention, actually, in some of our online groups, um, this is especially the women that I notice this with, um, they they sort of talk about, oh, I've got this little bit of fat around the middle, um, but it's not shifting. So I'm thinking of adding a gym session and cutting carbs. And I've seen two posts like this recently in our groups. And I've gone back and said, that's probably the worst thing you could do because you're creating quite a lot of, well, additional stress to the body with the extra training. Mm. Um, and and to my in my mind, a lot of women are a bit too low carb anyway. There's very yeah. sort of a bit carb phobic. Mm. Um, and I said, actually, you know, when we're stressed, fat, visceral fat, so fat around the middle, does tend to increase. And so if anything, you're sitting there going, "I hate this fat around my middle." Yeah, exactly. You're adding yeah, your adding, middle, yeah. Right? So not only are they getting anxious thoughts, but their solution is to go in and create more stress in the gym, more inflammation, and um, you know. And often I say, "Why not just take a week off the gym um, and step back and, and take out some of the confounding factors that might be affecting?" Um, but stress is, is a big one, and and. But I, I just think generally women, you know, like you just said, almost taking that thing away about portion control and, and initially is a really good good step and just change the source of all calories. Yeah, you know, it's like you can have as much as you like as long as it's good food um, and it's not out of a packet. And you will do, you know, in in, um, in one of Michael Pollan's books, he, he talks to somebody who's kind of involved in the marketing of the food industry in the States and that person actually comes up with a solution to obesity in the States. So this is quite a cynical guy that he was talking to. But uh, he was just saying, look, I can tell you the one diet that will work, that will get everyone healthy and slim, is that you can eat whatever you like as long as you make it from scratch yourself. Yeah. Because <laughs> all, those, all those kind of nice processed foods that are so easy to pick up in the supermarket, you know, they've got huge factories churning them out. But if you actually had to sit down and make that yourself, it would just take you ages. So you'd only do it 
you know, once in a blue moon. And the rest of the time, you'd have your steamed veg and, you know, your, your meats and fish that's all quite easy to cook and put together. So I think that was, that's the kind of thing. It's about going back to kind of saying, actually, let's, how many ingredients are on this? How much, you know, how long has it been sitting on this shelf and it's still supposedly edible and that kind of thing? You know, it's, it's just not going to be good for you. I don't know, you guys are obviously much more into the whole exercising than, than I am, or I hope you guys are anyway. Um, you know, what do you think when some woman says to you, oh, I've got this bit of fat around the middle? Do you think, yes, actually, you know, it's not very healthy? Or do you just kind of go, well, just a little bit, you're healthy otherwise? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's it. I mean, often we have to, um, we have to almost balance orthorexia with, with yeah. health um, because we're very much from a fitness industry where women are sort of plagued with these images of god if i see one more bloody adidas reebok picture of a woman in a crop top with toned abs you know and, yeah. and this is this is our, you know what we're all aspiring to look like essentially and some people we see get so fit and healthy they're doing so much amazing stuff but it's just never enough and almost yeah. the, the healthier they are and and we're putting information out there about you know nutrition training and supplements and um, they're missing the big trick, which is actually, um, you know, decreasing anxiety, loving themselves a little bit mm. more, um, being a bit kinder to themselves. Um, and and so it is quite a hard, it's a really hard line, actually. And I do think there's a bit of a gap for someone to come in and start teaching women how to be a bit kinder to themselves and yeah, reduce and, stress. But, you know, it's a kind of a funny kind of thing. I mean, we talked about childhood and you kind of hating Mondays. Obviously, a lot of women, a lot of people, but I think it is, is a female thing as well, will have grown up with their mothers looking at themselves in the mirror and not being happy with this, that, the other thing. And that's what they learn from a very young age, that this is what you do. Luckily, I didn't have that, so it's not something I'm particularly bothered about. But I know I get it from a lot of my friends. Yeah. You know, I get from my friends, I just kind of... I don't... Like, I personally don't really notice people's weights. It's just not something... And it's not like I think I'm perfect. I do kind of look and go, oh, it would be nicer. But, you know, it's just not a big deal for me. But I do have friends who are a little bit... If I don't say to them, you know, every other time I see them, like, oh, have you lost weight? They kind of feel a bit like, oh, she hasn't... And it's like, I just don't see it. I just can't <laughs> see it, what there is. And people do say to me quite often, like, oh, have you lost weight? And I'm like, I don't know, have I? I don't know. It's not something that that's really important to me. And then, then that person, because they feel like they've paid you a massive compliment and you've just been a bit, like, confused. They're not quite sure what to do. So there's definitely a lot of stuff. And what I think is sad, so you were just saying there about you know, orthorexia and people being too kind of perfect with everything. I did hear somebody the other day saying that, oh, yes, I would like to get rid of this fat around my middle. It's not because of how it looks. It's because I know it's it's unhealthy for me. And I think you know, this is just my judgment and this might not be this person at all, but to me it really sounded like it is because I hate how it looks, but I know it's not really, you know, I know that that's not a good way to think and I know that that's, you know, it's almost like moved beyond, you know, I know I want to kind of get rid of this whole thing about how I look. So I found another thing to say that I find is a bit more socially acceptable. So that was a bit kind of like when they said this to me, I was just like going, okay, yeah, whatever, you know, because obviously, you know, you and I know it's true that, having a lot of weight around your middle isn't healthy for you. It's much better to have a kind of more distributed around your hips and bum and stuff. But, you know, there's when when you can't even see what the person's talking about, yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. just like going, I really wouldn't worry, you know, go on, <laughs> go on a British beach on like, you know, the one hot day in a year and you'll see all the guys there and you'll realise, you know, all these, uh, you know, lobster red guys with uh, their big beer bellies over their shorts and you're thinking, actually... Maybe I don't need to worry so much. <laughs> so, uh, no, no, I've got one last question before we um, wrap it up. I always find it funny because I know, I know like today where we're talking about, you know, like mental health, etc., and the link with nutrition. But, I mean, I'm sure you'll agree that generally we find if people just clean their diet up and start eating more nutrient-dense foods and less processed foods, mm -hmm. it kind of just goes across the board and they feel better kind of all round. You know, they, they have more energy, they feel more confident, they lose body fat, etc., etc., which will automatically have a, a knock-on effect, so to speak, um, on, on kind of like your general outlook of life, if you like. Mm -hmm. But um, So obviously good food all round is always a winner, but is there any supplements that you would recommend, you know, uh, for, for great mental health? Um, well, I think everyone's an individual, so I wouldn't kind of say that everyone should go off and do things. But if somebody came to me, you know, we would look at things like maybe a fish oil supplement because people 
don't tend to eat oily fish enough. And even if they do now, they've probably been quite deficient in it for quite some time. So that's so that's one thing. Um, there are like supplements that people kind of classically take to kind of like you know they're kind of cheery ones. There's one called Five HTP, and I was actually a little bit against this for a while. So Five HTP is a precursor of serotonin that lots of people kind of see as like the happy neurochemical. Um, and in concept, it works very similarly to antidepressants. And, um, you know, we don't have time to go into that, but Irving Kirsch is a guy who's written a very interesting book about the research or lack thereof that, um, behind antidepressants, behind the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or citalopram that I mentioned earlier, or Prozac was kind of the first big one that everyone knew about. And, uh, and he really, you know, if you read the book, he kind of goes through all the evidence that the drug companies have used to get these drugs approved and kind of points out that it's rubbish. And then there's more rubbish and there's more rubbish. Um, and 5-HTP, you know, in theory, should kind of be acting the same way. And that made me kind of think, oh, actually, I shouldn't be giving this to anybody because, you know, it's just shown that this this serotonin um, theory that we have um, probably isn't right. Um, but on at the weekend, I was at a, um, a Food for the Brain conference um, in, in London about, about nutrition and mental health, and they were looking at things like... They're looking at depression, but they're also looking at things like schizophrenia and Parkinson's and um, Alzheimer's and things. And um, I, I asked the question, because one of the things they mentioned in their treatment of depression, which they do at the clinic, which is the Food for the Brain, the Brain Biocenter is um, related to the, the same organization, there was 5-HTP. So I stuck my hand up and said, well, what do you think of this? Um, in you know, isn't it just attempting to do the same thing as antidepressants are? Um, and the good point is that it was a, a lady called Deborah Coulson who was doing the talking, and she the point that she made back to me was like that could be true, and I don't know, but she said it doesn't have side effects, and it's not the only thing that we do. So we would only give five HTP as part of a general thing about you know cleaning up the diet as you were just saying there Matt so so that kind of made me feel that oh actually yeah maybe there is a point to that because the problem with antidepressants is that people are just given this one antidepressant and said this is the thing that's going to fix you and if it doesn't it's probably your fault um, and so they're not giving anything else around it and the side effects of antidepressants can be very serious um, so that's you know so that that made me feel a bit so I'm, I'm going to think again no, like, about think HTP. It, I was going to say do you think it could work in a sense of providing people with because it's going to offer perhaps increased serotonin, a better sense of well-being and therefore increased sense of motivation to carry out the nutritional measures that you might suggest or the exercise that they, they desperately need. Um, I know it's like a bit of a green doctor approach in that you're, you know, treating a symptom as it were, but it might help in long-term um, cases. It could. I mean, it could do. Um, again, it's like the individual. I think the other thing can also be that, you know, obviously serotonin is very important for our digestive system. So it may well be that if you take 5-HTP, you kind of help relax your digestive system and maybe it starts working better. So, you know, it's one of these things that, you know, up until last week, I was kind of like saying, oh, no, I'll never, ever suggest this to everyone. But then after having the discussion and looking, you know, on, on Saturday, I'm kind of thinking I'll have to go and have a look at this again. So as long, you know, I think there could be a place for it as long as it's not the only thing that you're suggesting for somebody yeah. um, and that they don't have any kind of reaction to it, you know. So, you know, so it's just different things can work for different people. What about things like, um, have you used amino acids at all for people? Or I haven't precursors? gotten into that quite yet because I find that, you know, with most people, you're telling them, eat protein. Yeah, um, so yeah. if they're if they actually start eating more protein, they're going to get all their amino acids from that. But it is something that I'm interested in looking into a bit more to see. Because a lot of the things... You know, being a nutritional therapist, you know, with for me, it's always the thing, you know, people have to change how they eat. They can't just take a load of supplements and yeah. then keep eating, you know, bad foods and expecting to feel better. But sometimes I think as we were saying there, yeah, you were just saying about 5-HTP, so just to give them that little kind of spurt at the beginning that they can see that there's an impact and it gives them more motivation to actually go shopping, buy the right food, cook the food, that kind of thing, that there could be, you know, that there are other things out there that can help with that. So amino acids is one of the things I'm going to be looking into a bit more. But for the moment, I find of people that you actually just need to tell them to eat more protein anyway. And, you know, let's, let's get that in their diet first. And then we can kind of see if there's specific supplements that could help on top of that. Are there any herbs that you've ever um, sort of used or, or recommended as well? Because I know 
obviously adaptogens for stress management, anxiety, which would help with symptoms of depression. But is there anything that specifically... <laughs> Matt's laughing. I think he's wondering if I'm going to suggest like marijuana or <laughs> herbal medicine. Yeah, um, you know it's one of these things that you know with, with um, that some people, you know, different people have different reactions to different things. So I, I don't really go hugely into like herbal remedies themselves, but I do talk a lot about herbal teas. And some people find things like chamomile and valerian very helpful. Or peppermint, if it's you know, if you're a person that needs a little bit more of a shush in the morning or something like that to kind of get you going. So it'd be those kind of gentle things rather than um, at the moment going into very kind of serious herbal remedies. But there are also some things that I would suggest to people that may have herbs within a kind of a, a mixture or complex of um, of useful nutrients. So you know, in that case, but it's not something that I am hugely expert in as yet. Awesome. Well, no, um, I'm going to wrap it up there because we've okay. surpassed the, uh, the the hour mark, which okay. uh, <laughs> we, we try and stick to if we can. But um, okay. but no, awesome to chat to you. Awesome to have you on the show. And no doubt, plenty of uh, little nuggets of info there that people can take away. But I think it all just links in, you know, like when it comes to nutrition, I just think generally everything, as I mentioned there, just has a massive knock on effect, you know, and you clean your act up both uh physically and mentally but um before we go tell us where people can because no doubt people are going to be dying to know a little bit more about you and, and and what you do so where can people get a little bit more information on you yes so my website's um www.griffinnutrition.co.uk as uh, so there's two ends in the middle of that Griffin Nutrition. Um, and the first step that I always do at working with anyone is that we have a chat either on the phone or if it's possible face-to-face -face first just to kind of go through what they're eating now and I just give them three tips to, to like changes they could just make that day or the following day that would um, help them feel better really quickly. That's and great. then so that's just you know something I like to do to kind of get an idea. We can kind of talk to each other and see if we're you know the right kind of fit to work together so if you go to my website you can um see you can fill in the contact form and i'll be in touch to set that up and what about you are you on social media at all i am on facebook in a very small way i think i've liked your page i don't know how i don't oh, know how you. most of these things work so you might need to like <laughs> guide me through things but yeah it's um oh it's on facebook.com and then it's forward slash griffin nutrition uk Awesome. Well, we'll, uh, we'll check that out and we'll post cool. it in uh, in Fitter Food. Brilliant. Thank you. Fantastic. Awesome, Nella. Well, thank you so, so much. Yeah, and great to speak to you. No doubt we'll uh, speak to you again uh, a little bit further down the line. Great. Thank you, guys. Nice thank one. You. Thanks for listening, Bye. folks. And we will see you in episode number 25.